Welcome to St. Joseph Radio Presents. Here we are again. This is Reasons for God, Part 7. Part 7, what are we doing in Part 7? It's the moral argument. You know, does, are we just molecules in motion, or is our morality rooted in the mind of a morally and good God? And that's going to be the question today. I'm ready. Watch. Welcome to the St. Joseph Radio Presents live program broadcasting to you from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. The program that for over 30 years has brought you eloquent speakers from across the globe to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. Our program covers a variety of topics relating to current issues and occurrences in our daily lives. Now, with the aid of technology, we are able to bring the gospel message to the four corners of the world, where Christ himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. It is our hope at St. Joseph Radio that through these programs, we can help evangelize the world and change one soul at a time. Now, here is your host to introduce today's guest and topic. Well, thank you, Matt. I am your host today. I'm Peter Karutz, and we're live in studio with Mr. Miller. You are the Miller man. Good day. Yeah. And, and let me just give you a little background here. You are the DRE at where? Immaculate Heart of Mary in New Melly. You've got to peck a bag to go out there. Is it that? It's not <laughs> it's that not far. Bad. It's, it's not the crossroads far. of the nation. It's a beautiful little church. I, I love it. I love it. It's really good. Hey, hey, I got to tell you a quick story. I was on a road trip years ago, a uh, long trip, uh, and it can be boring, right? Long trip, and I was with one of my young associates, and he said something. He said, you know what? There is no such thing as truth. It's just my truth or your truth. And I, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, it's all a societal construct. You know? I say, so if, so if in Nazi Germany I'm a, I'm a German and I pull out a Luger and I shoot a Jew, that's okay because it's the culture. Mm-hmm. You know what he said? He said, yeah. So I think we're a bit confused. Oh, and uh, uh, and I, I know we're, we're trying to uh, give a series. This is part seven. Reasons for God. Reasons for God, using a memory aid, jumped, J-U-M-P-E-D. We talked about Jesus, Jews, the universe, the unanimous consent. Last time we spoke about miracles. Today we're going to be speaking about the moral law, moral the argument. moral law. Which basically goes back to what you just said there. Is there an objective moral um, order that everyone admits that comes from a moral good God? Or is it all just cultural, social... Whatever works for you, society. Right. Um, are we just fish brain? You know, are we just uh, amoebas that grew into fish and, are, and, and now our fish brains have decided what's right and wrong? So who cares, right? If, if all I am is fish brain, then what does yeah. my reasonableness mean unless there's something else? Well, that's what we're going to be doing. So, yeah, I mean, uh, just to, rec- to recount, you know, I have this memory aid jumped, J-U-M-P-E-D, and it's kind of meant to be on this theme of making the, quote, leap of faith. I'm jumping, jumping, thinking about the movie, um, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade there, where he's <laughs> taking this leap yeah, of faith. Yeah, but it, but yeah. it's, a, it's a leap into light. So we have reasons, rational. We have the light. That's a reflection of the rational, ordered God. So that's not a leap in the dark. I mean, some people define uh, faith as belief in the, in the absence of evidence. I mean, that's bogus. That, that, that is not the church. I mean, faith and reason are the two wings of a bird or a plane as we come to try and see the true, quote, Superman, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the, the order of, of, of who God is. So in, in, in this one, we're going to be kind of following, um, this is part seven, 
just in this moral argument. But um, you know, I want to be recommending a bunch of different sources here. One of the one of the great sources, and I hope if if you're a Catholic at a Catholic parish, you've checked out formed.org. Mm-hmm. There's a great series in there called The Search, and uh, Chris Stefanik. He's, he's the host of the series, and in I think it was in part three, he said, I think we're the first era in history to have so many people say, God, if you're really there, why don't you reveal yourself to us? He says, I think God would respond by saying, do you not notice everything? So this everything is not just the gift of creation outside of us, that's what we spoke about last time, but, but that's also the gift of conscience inside of us. I'd like to use these three sources of creation, Christ, conscience. These are the three great sources of of law. So uh, maybe we should start with the great lawgiver in a prayer to him. And, Woo, uh, <laughs> I knew I forgot something. Would you mind saying the prayer as long as you remembered? <laughs> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Amen. you are the great lawgiver, both in the laws of nature and the world outside of us, and in Christ who walked beside us, and in the Holy Spirit, your, your law of love you placed inside of us. We call upon that Spirit today to anoint this conversation that we're going to have, and for all upon whom these words will one day fall. We ask this, as in all things, through Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Just to take you off your game, because I have to, you, you mentioned a few things and you put it on my heart. We're coming up to Easter, and my, my daughters came up with a word, I don't know, maybe they copied it, but they call, it's called Christers. People go, to, right. people, go to, people go to church on Christmas and Easter, and we're going to have that opportunity coming up. And you're going to see somebody sitting in your pew, and uh, crowding you out, uh, I'm just going to encourage you to welcome them, mm-hmm. say hello. Uh, you know they, they're here for one one day, maybe maybe yeah. two a year, and especially in the world that we live in today, frankly, in the archdiocese that we're in today, we need to encourage people to come back mm-hmm. to the to the faith. Yeah. And if that's one day, good, make them feel good to be there. Welcome. And what were we doing? We're sharing the good news, and we're happy about the good news. So yeah. please say say hello. Welcome them. Maybe they'll ask you a question. Maybe they'll just say hello. <laughs> well, you know that makes me think. Um, when I don't know who said it, but he says, you know, why do people come to church on Christmas and Easter? Typically, no, well, he says because they feel like it. I mean, that's the time uh, of year when they feel like it. And I think for a lot of people, that's what they think kind of faith is. It's 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 not really rational. It's more than subjective, emotional. I got a history here. My family did this, and therefore I'm going to go because now I feel like it. And I think, you know, I mean, that's that's okay at the surface, but the faith's got to go deeper. And that's why it's so important, I think, to have, you know, rational evidences, reasons for why you believe. Otherwise, emotions change like the weather. We all right. know that. And, you know, there might become a time where you don't feel like going to Mass. Of, of course. course. You don't, I mean, it's like if you base your life on feelings, your marriage on feelings, mm-hmm. your relationship on mm-hmm. feelings, it's a matter of time before That's it's right. going down That's right. down the chute. So it's yeah. like it comes down to, you know, you got to have reasons for why you believe. I mean, what what it's uh, – C.S. Lewis said, he goes, faith is the art of believing uh, what your reason has once accepted to be true despite your changing moods. There you go. I'm like, well, that's a beautiful definition because yeah. – Sometimes you feel like religion, sometimes you don't. Right. And think about fun- the <clears throat> fundamentals, love. Everybody thinks it's a feeling. It's a decision, mm-hmm. right? Think about forgiveness. <laughs> if you've ever been in a position to have to forgive someone, re- you know it's a decision. It's not a feeling. The feeling you know, wants yeah. to strangle, wants to punish, but the forgiving 
is a decision, right? Yeah, right. So, so we, we got to make those decisions to love people. Yeah, I joke with uh, the priest that I work with, Father Tom, and he, uh, he won't mind this because I always tease him about he's, you know, he, he calls me Spock, you know, like I'm this, <laughs> I'm this rational guy. I call him Mr. Like B.J. Thomas. I'm hooked on a feeling, yeah. you know, and, uh, and it was just funny because, you know, you need both. You do. You know, and it's like, uh, and this is where, you know, the human person comes into play. Like, I, I like what Dr. Crave said that, you know, you think about like the Star Trek characters, Spock, Kirk, and Bones. They kind of represent, you know, Spock's the intellect, Bones is the emotion, and Kirk is the will. And like, you need that whole person engaging other people. But we tend to focus on what becomes easy, which is emotion. Yeah. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm lonely, whatever, and then I, I follow it. So if I don't feel like religion or I don't feel like this relationship, I'm just going to cancel it. Yeah. Like, that is not humanity, you know, so. Not the so, good part of humanity, anyway. Right, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so we're back to it here. We're, well, we're on morality, right? Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to be talking about law, conscience, justice, uh, moral choices. Is it objective, subjective, et cetera? We did a talk some time ago where we used the memory aid defense D-F-E-N-C-E. Think about like if you're at a, a football game and somebody's holding up a D and somebody's holding up a fence to kind of speak about the various forms of law. Divine law, we're talking, you know, commandments, uh, family law, ecclesiastical law, natural moral law, civil law, all part of the eternal law. So that was the acronym FENCE. Think about a fence as like a, you know, a, um, a wall – and a wall is meant to protect. A fence is meant to protect. I mean, as soon as my kids, we had our house and they were little and they were, we didn't have a fenced in yard. They were out, almost got run over on the street. I put in a fence, chain link fence to kind of protect them. And that's what kind of like the wall is. That's what the law is. So the moral law is meant to be, you know, a protection, but it's a reflection of the great protector, the great good moral Lord, which is God. So we're going to be speaking about the moral law as one of the uh, reasons about why it's so fitting to believe in this good and moral God. So I want to start out with a little story, and I think I might have told this one before, but, you know, late one night, this burglar broke into a house, and he uh, tiptoed through the living room, but suddenly froze in his tracks when he thought he heard a voice say, Jesus is watching you. Was this his conscience? <laughs> Was this a real voice? After a few minutes of waiting, silence returned, and so the burglar crept forward again. Jesus is watching you, the voice spoke again. The burglar stopped dead in his tracks. He was nervous, frightened, starting to break in a panic sweat. Frantically, he looked all around. In a dark corner, he finally spotted a birdcage, and in the cage was a parrot. He saw the bird's beak move, and then out of its mouth came the words, Jesus is watching you. In a sigh of relief, the burglar said, it's just you, you dumb parrot. And in anger, as he was going to reach into the cage to strangle the bird, he heard a low, deep growl coming from another corner of the house. When he turned the flashlight to where the, the noise was coming from, it rested upon a huge black dog foaming at the mouth, staring at him, ready to pounce. Whereupon the parrot said, Sick him, Jesus. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, well, that's kind of a setup for really what, from funny to a really tragic story. Um, I thought of that because, I mean, it's obviously about morality, but I've got this photo in front of me of World War II, a German sh sh uh, soldier ready to shoot this man in the head who's on his knees before he falls into this mass grave. And I read of a similar story where. Uh, one of the soldiers testified that before this man was shot, he had told the soldier, he said, God is watching you. And he really, you know, exhorted 
the man to recognize the voice of conscience, and that at the end of the day, God is watching. Now, thanks be to God, there was a reckoning in time with the Allied forces to stop this onslaught of horror. But really, you know, in the Judeo-Christian view, there's going to be an ultimate reckoning from an all-just, all-knowing God, even if people get away with it in this life, you know? I mean, think about all the movies, shows, TVs that we watch over the years, you know, from... I mean, just think about these like cops, you know, uh, Blue Bloods, Law and Order, Cold Case, CSI, even like Dog, Dog the Bounty Hunter. You know, it's it's dramas about good and bad, right and wrong, you know, evil, punishment, etc. And everybody wants justice done, at least for others anyways, right? We don't really want it for ourselves. But we want justice done in these shows, otherwise we're kind of scandalized. And that kind of points to this, you know, what, what Catholics proclaim every week in the creed, right? We say, you know, what we intuitively sense in our bones, he will come to judge the living and the dead. There will be a test, so to speak, right? We all get that sense of justice. So, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. <clears throat> now, you know, we're in an era that says, don't judge me. Like, you know, everyone's saying, only God can judge me, forgetting that one day he will. <laughs> You know, and so we have this thing called a conscience. Now, we we have a tough time reconciling with this because we haven't really faced the music, I think, in a lot of culture. There's a lot of ways to try and silence this voice, this sense. We develop all kinds of isms, rationalisms, we might say, escapes, drugs and plugs to try and shout it out. I mean, we mentioned last time this, that we're in this cultural fall called scientism. So that's like a, a rational worldview which basically says that it's nonsense to believe in something that's nonsense, right? So, oh, this is your conscience. This is your moral sense. This is, you say it's from God or your soul. It's nonsense, you know? Why? Because I can't put it under a, a microscope. So it tries to affirm that the only valid form of knowledge is what can be empirically tested. But, I mean, that's, that's nonsense because think about all the spiritual, intellectual realities that we all hold as commonsensical, right? Love, joy, honor, courage, virtue, goodness, character, intelligence, rationality, peace, patience. I mean, th these are things that are real and true, and we know it. So scientism is only one slice of this pie about reality. You know, in fact, like if someone says science is the only avenue to truth, well, that too must be nonsense because it's not scientific. It's a philosophical statement. You know, if someone says that, you know, um, we should only believe what can be proved scientifically, then all, all you got to ask is, has it been proved scientifically that we should only believe what can be proved scientifically? What scientific experiment proved that? So to, to the point here, you know, what can science say about all the questions of ought, you know, should, good or evil, right or wrong? Uh, can it say anything about that, you know? And so I say we're not just in a dictatorship of scientism but in a dictatorship of relativism. And that should, for all those Catholics who know kind of the church lingo, that's from a quote that uh, Pope Benedict said became before he became Pope. He said that we are moving toward a dictatorship of relativism, which does not recognize anything as for certain, and which has as its highest goal one's own ego and one's own desires. So relativism says there are no objective moral values, only what you think might be true for you. But, you know, is this really the case? And the really the greatest test is to look at, I mean, the greatest liar in the world is still outraged when he's lied to. The greatest thief in the world is ticked when somebody steals his stuff. The greatest adulterer in, in the world would be massively upset if his wife commits adultery, right? So that's like a, a, a famous atheist said, 
I don't believe in God, but I want my banker, my lawyer, and my doctor to do so. Of course. Right? Because, you know, you want honesty and truth and goodness. So, um, you know, to kind of link the last talks with this one, there was a great quote from C.S. Lewis. He said that uh, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. So that just doesn't apply to physical laws in, in the natural world outside of us, but it also points to the internal law of the nature within us. So from science to conscience, conscience, there's an outside law and there's the inside law. And so that law within us points to a lawgiver. And so one of the books I recommended last time was, a, uh, it's a series called Radio Replies, and it's like... It's a it's a threefold set. It's actually online now in in in, in five volumes. But it's what my uh, parish priest growing up said that of all the theology he took in seminary, nothing really compared to this threefold set of radio replies. So it's about six thousand Q and A on on the faith. I I was in my uh, library at home and I realized I have it. Oh, good. One of those books I haven't cracked. So <laughs> it's on the list. So. Uh, there was, it's great because it divides it by sections. And it always starts out with like, you know, reasons for belief in God. So one guy writes, he goes, give me reasons for belief in God apart from the Bible. And uh, here's what this response says. He says, in every man, there's a sense of right and wrong. A man knows interiorly when he's doing wrong. He knows what he is going against. He, he knows he's going against an inward voice. It's the voice of conscience dictating to us a law we did not make and which no man could have made for this voice protests whether other men know our conduct or not. This voice is often quite against what we wish to do, warning us beforehand, condemning us after its violation. The law dictated by this voice of conscience supposes a lawgiver who has written his law in our hearts. And as God alone could do this, it is certain that he exists. And it is written in our hearts. We need to talk about that a little bit. This is St. Joseph Radio Presents, coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri, the Rome of the West. I'm your host, Peter Karutz, and I'm with Sean Miller, and this is Reasons for God, Part seven, lucky seven, we're in the moral. Yeah, so uh, there's, if you get a chance, I mean, uh, break open the catechism. There's a section, number 1776 to 1802, it talks about moral conscience. And this is a beautiful text. I mean, the priest at uh, St. Gianna's, Father Elliot, I, I can remember hearing a homily of his one time where he just memorized this from the heart, you know, just spoke it. He says, deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. Its voice, ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil, sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God whose voice echoes in his depths. And that's beautiful. I mean, obviously, you know, when someone thinks about conscience, they might think back to Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket and all that stuff, you know. Conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. That's what Jiminy Cricket said. Or I got this uh, cartoon in front of me from the family circus where the girl's telling the little boy, she goes, conscience is email your head gets from heaven. <laughs> and it's a really beautiful way to think about that is that the Lord has put this gift within us. You know, it's what separates us from 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 bugs, from dogs, from, from creatures, right, other ones. But this article 1776, obviously, when we hear that term, that number, we think about what? Well, <clears throat> July 4th, 1776, where, <clears throat> you know, we, we declared our independence, our freedom from Britain, you know, and we wanted to be to, to free to kind of mark out our own path without all, all, all this excessive garbage they were imposing on us. But 
I want to spend a little time on conscience here um, and just about freedom, because I, I think it's good, because today, you know, we are so confused about freedom and what it is. We think it's the right to do what I want to do, rather than the power to do that which would I ought. You know, so um, there's in 1733 in the Catechism, it says, the more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. There is no true freedom except in the service of what is good and just. The choice to disobey and do evil is an abuse of freedom and leads to the slavery of sin. I mean, think about this. Like, imagine doing two actions. One is practicing the piano for four hours a day versus drinking alcohol for four hours a day. Okay, you're getting uh, good at the various activity, but one's leading you into freedom. The more you practice the piano, the actual free you are to actually play it. It's a freedom for excellence, whereas the other freedom is actually enslaving you. You know, and so like that's the real difference. Everyone knows it in terms of sports, right? The more you know the rules and the more you practice according to those rules, the greater you can become. It's a freedom for excellence. And that's and that's a beautiful thing. So this the sense of trying to follow the game, the rules of the game, especially moral conscience, this is this is what is at the heart of a person that's really warning us to say, hey, do good, avoid evil. Kind of the patron saint of conscience would be St. Thomas More. Oh, yeah. Think about the show, Man for All Seasons, right? Right. Another movie that really is a must-see for Catholics. Because it really is someone trying to follow his conscience to do the right thing in the midst of massive persecution and threat of death, which we know he he did die for his his faith. And he didn't only die, but his family lost everything they had. Mm -hmm. So he, he he was going to lose his life, but sometimes it's even harder for us to lose. To, to see our family suffer. Yeah. But he, he did it. You know, we, you, you, we talk about conscience. We talk about something that's written on our heart. So the natural question is, well, then how come everybody didn't exercise their conscience the way they should? Yeah. Why is it that we have such things going on that would be, from, a, from our standpoint, objectively, morally wrong, unconscionable? Right. And I, I think we have to add one more component to that and that's sin, mm-hmm. and 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 mortal sin, and and to some extent, it's not meant to be ex- an excuse, but to some extent, persistent mortal sin will kill a conscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will kill. And it, and and what happens when you? Why does the drug g- dr- dealer give you free drunk? Because mm-hmm. he wants you enslaved. You're enslaved. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, you think about like sin in general, original sin, uh, the church holds basic. What does it do? It it darkens the intellect and weakens the will. And then if you have persistent grave sin, it's like throwing mud on the windshield. You can no longer see. And there's, you know, and there's um, the effect of it. Again, that's why anybody that goes to confession on a regular basis, they know one of the effects is you can see things clearly. I mean, I can see clearly now the sin is gone. And it's like, until you recognize that fact, I mean, um, you're, you're really fighting this war of, you know, different voices coming at you, and you can't really discern which they are. And if your conscience becomes deadened, you know, I mean, that's why leprosy has always been a symbol for sin, because what, what happens to a leper is that uh, he no longer feels the nerve endings in his various members. You, you lose touch with it, and that is a bad place to be. Is what they say the worst punishment God can give you is to let you enjoy the fruit of your sin mm-hmm. without the guilt that comes with it right. to cause us mm-hmm. to repent. You know, like if you got a broken rib, the pain you know, is good, let you slow down. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So this voice, this you know, thing within us is conscience. And like uh so the catechism says when he listens to his conscience and can hear God speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh 
John Henry Newman, St. John Henry said that, you know, conscience is the aboriginal vicar of, of Christ. It's like the Pope of the soul. I mean, Fulton Sheen said it's one's interior Sinai. And the kicker is, and this is why, again, the Catechism 1779, it's important for every person to be sufficiently present to himself in order to hear and follow the voice of his conscience. This requirement of interiority is all the more necessary as life often distracts us from any reflection, self-examination, or introspection. So a great book Teresa Tomeo wrote called Noise. And basically its premise is, imagine a society where people are so distracted and have diversions and entertainments and whatnot that they have no self-awareness of who they are, why they are, what they think, why they think it, what's the reason, where are they going, where do they come from, etc. Talk about sheep easily led to the slaughter of the world of what? Of noise and of toys. And that's slavery. I mean, the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz, he was trying to control people. That's like a symbol for the media, really trying to get you to do its own thing. It's a fear tactic, it's scare, but it's like entertainment. You know, it's bread and circuses, as they used to say, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the Roman uh, um, Colosseum. But C.S. Lewis has a great quote here. He goes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks to us in our, in our conscience. And, he, and in, in, in other translation, it says, in silence. And then he goes on to say, but, but shouts to us in our pains. But I want to focus on that, speaks to us in silence. I mean, um, we're going to be speaking about Blaise Pascal down the road here. But, he, you know, one of his beautiful quotes, he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Now, why is that? Because, well, first of all, if you would sit alone in a room, you would be able to listen to that still small voice, which you could not hear if you're engaged in distraction and entertainment and noise and toys. I mean, you know, all of us got to look at ourselves as like, okay, we got our jobs, we got our work, we got our hobbies, we got this and that. But like, if I'm not spending some level of significant time in a level of silence, reflection, meditation, discerning, reading, studying, whatever it might be to begin to listen to some bigger things as well as my own heart. I got some issues, you know. And then if, if I'm not doing that, then I'm, like I said, I'm easily led like a lamb to the slaughter. And there's a great video that I watched years ago called uh, Blind Spot. And it was an interview with, with Hitler's secretary. And uh, they were talking about conscience and responsibility because, you know, when you have conscience, you have to assume responsibility for this voice, you know, that telling you, do this, don't do that. Now, it was really interesting because as she's speaking about conscience, she was speaking about those who felt pity and sadness for what they were doing under orders. But they were kind of led to say, well, you know, you have to sacrifice this for the greater cause. And she said, Hitler used to say this. He would say, you do not have to worry, any of you. You just have to do whatever I say, and I'll take responsibility. So he was trying to kind of say, don't worry about your own choices. I'll do it. It's on me. So it's like, forgo your conscience. Forgo your choice and give it to on behalf of someone. That, that is so dangerous. I mean, in our world today, right now, we want to say, um, I'm not responsible. Who am I to blame? I'm just genetics. This is just my molecules in motion. I'm not really the one doing this, right? Or the devil made me do it, or whatever it might be. And it's like, that, that, that is a serious bad place to be. Serious bad place to be. Let me tell you what a serious good place to be is. is right here, listening to this program. We're going to come back in about two minutes. Your job, right here, right now, is tell a friend. Tell them to tune in. The second half is always the better half. We'll see you in about two minutes. 
Hi, this is Matt Logaman with St. Joseph Radio with a great gift idea, a St. Benedict bracelet, a trendy accessory for men, women, and children that not only looks good on everyone's wrist, but is actually armor for the spiritual battlefield. This unique bracelet is handmade in Europe and contains 10 medals within the braided cord in the adult size and 7 medals in the children's size. On the front of each beautiful medal is St. Benedict holding a cross in his right hand, the object of his devotion. On the back of each medal is a cross. Surrounding the back of the medal and cross are the letters V. E-R-S-N-M-V-S-M-Q-L-I-V-B. In Latin reference, which translates, Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. And finally, located at the top is the word Pax, which means peace. All bracelets come packaged with an informational card and the St. Benedict blessing, which your local priest can administer. This gift is for everyone you love and care about, including yourself. Available from St. Joseph Radio, check the website at www.saintjosephradio.net. St. Joseph Catholic Radio is proud to announce the launch of SJEN TV, the St. Joseph Evangelization Network. SJEN TV is a premier online Catholic broadcasting network providing quality Catholic programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have programming such as live studio interviews, St. Joe's Java speaker presentations, current Catholic issues, and the pro-life series. We're featuring the many talented speakers out of Orange County, California, and this Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri including Professor John Gresham, Father James Mason, Karen Nokemper, Rick Hollerick, Bill Federer, and many more. To review the program list, go to sjen.tv or on Roku, sjen.tv. All this programming is free, and we are welcoming sponsorship of new programs. Find out more at sjen.tv. And we're back. I'm your host, Peter Karutz. We're here with Sean Miller. We are talking about the... We were talking about Reasons for God, Part 7. The moral argument. Moral argument, Lucky 7. Yeah, so we finished last time, or just mentioned about uh, this interview with Hitler's secretary. And it was it was interesting in that about 20 years after the fact is that there was a famous, uh, it's called the Stanley Milgram's Obedience Experiments. And basically, it was, it was based upon um, how could people blindly follow the orders of such a person like Hitler. You know, we said that what he chose to like, you know, say, hey, don't follow your conscience, I'll take responsibility. So he did this test basically to say, would individuals shock another individual up to the point of where it could be deadly for giving wrong answers? It was all kind of the setup, but it was a test these, you know, these willing people who thought that they were just following the orders of someone telling them to say, if he gets a wrong answer, shock him. Shock, 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 shock. And it was amazing how far they would go and, and if I recall, maybe this is a different experiment, but this was a, a – basically they were using various people, some college students. And the, the premise of it was that they wanted to see if negative reinforcement would help someone get the right answers. But the person who was really being tested was the person giving the shock. Yeah. So the person in the chair was faking it, mm-hmm. giving the wrong answers and faking it. But the person in here yeah. – didn't know that they didn't know that the that they're not really giving a shock, and yeah. they did it, and they knew it was just an experiment, but they did it anyway, yeah. and they kept doing it. Yeah, it's um, well, it's really sad because I mean it shows you that what people will do to like um, not follow their conscience under the realm of the authority, and it's like in this one scene, basically. They had it set up where every time this guy would shock him, this other guy would, he, you know, when it got really serious, he would act like he was really getting hurt. Right. So he would scream, scream, right, 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 right. let me out of here, let me out of here, let me out of here. 
And then only when the guy shocks him and he doesn't hear the guy behind there, he thinks he might be dead because he's not screaming anymore. Then the guy stops and he goes, I'm not going along with this anymore. And he goes, you have to. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but it was only after right. the 30th shock, you right, know, whatever. Right. So, well, if you read uh, C.S. Lewis's book, it's the famed book, Mere Christianity. And that, again, is, mm-hmm. a, is yeah. a must read. He, he basically goes through, like, the moral argument that, you know, Pretty much everyone says, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. But we know what it's like if you get someone, if they cut line, break a palm of steel. It's a sense that you're offended and, and you're hurt. It, that points to this universal standard, right? Even if you complain about it and say, well, hey, I can do what I want to do. If someone does it to you, you're going to say, hey, that's not right. So this inner sense of right and wrong indicates that there's a higher standard of what is good and evil that governs and put that law there. So say you disagree with this, yet the very nature of your disagreement proves the point because you are appealing to some objective standard of a right and a wrong. You know, so Dr. Peter Kraft, he's got this book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, and he's mm-hmm. got this moral argument there. And um, he kind of says this. He goes, modern people often say they believe there are no universal binding objective moral obligations that we must all follow, except, of course, their own private conscience. I can do what I want. But, you know, that very admission is enough of a premise to prove the existence of God, he says. Isn't it remarkable that no one, even the most consistent subjectivist, believes that it is ever good for anyone to deliberately and knowingly disobey his or her conscience? Even if different people's consciences tell them to do or to totally avoid different things, there remains one moral absolute for everyone, never disobey your own conscience. So it's like he says, what, what is that? And he goes, conscience is thus explainable only as the voice of God in the soul. He says the Ten Commandments are like 10 divine footprints in our psychic sand. He says every year he starts off his class at um, Boston College, he'll ask the students, like, you know, why be good? I mean, why not be evil? I mean, if there's no universal standard, who cares? Like I watched this show, which was really hard to stomach. It was Jeffrey Dahmer years ago, remember? And it was called The uh, The Monster Within. And that was kind of the conclusion he, he came to. He's like, he... Uh, basically said, look, I don't believe in God. I think I'm just an evolutionary accident. Why can't I make my own rules? And I've got these inner drives and these dispositions. Why not act on them? Who says? So he went on, and we know he killed 17 people, and it is a horrific thing. But, um, you know, it comes down to if there's no objective standard, then is it anything goes? So, like, Dr. William Lane Craig, he's got a book called Reasonable Faith, and he puts it matter-of-factly. He says, God makes sense of objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. To say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is right or wrong independently of whether anybody believes it to be so. It is to say, for example, that Nazi anti-Semitism was morally wrong even though the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust thought that it was good. And it would still be wrong even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in exterminating or brainwashing everybody who disagreed with them. The claim is that in the absence of God, moral values are not objective in this sense. Now, the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down we all know it. And we got to emphasize this to people who kind of play this intellectual smokescreen game like, ah, I don't think there's any proof. Ask people to follow the implications of if atheistic worldviews were true. You know, like I sat down at the table with the, the family. I said, all right, what do you think is the worst morally objectionable crime that everyone would agree is, is wrong, even the most hardened nonbeliever? And we came to the conclusion, really, it's the, you know, child sex trafficking the ongoing moral torture and abuse 
of children. I mean, and it's one of the fastest growing criminal industries in the world, second to the drug trade. And it's like, if anybody says that it doesn't really matter, that this isn't really right or wrong in an objective sense about the, the, the sex trafficking, moral torture, and abuse, and abuse of children, we got some serious issues. Everybody recognizes that. And then you just think about the crimes of the world. I mean, I was studying about World War II, the uh, Holocaust. If you look up Nazi human experimentation and what Dr. Joseph Mengele did, I mean, he was fascinated with twins. He did studies on 1,500 twins of all these people and just horrific studies on the being. He was trying to test for, like, heredity and environment, how to increase German, you know, population and whatnot. And but at the expense of killing these children and experimenting on them in horrible ways. And you're like, okay, uh, there's some standard here outside of just warm, fuzzy feelings that just says this is right or this is wrong. Think about, like, you know, the last 100 years with communism, what it did just to kill. Think of locally all the different crimes of murder, rape, you know, adultery, abortion, um, genocide, slavery, kidnapping. You know, I can remember back when 9-11 took place, I was teaching this eighth grade class, and we were talking about this. And this one girl, she says, you know, I understand, you know, these people who did this, but really we can't really say it's wrong because in their view, the people who flew these, you know, planes into buildings, they thought that they were doing right. So really, who are we to say that what they did was wrong? And I'm like okay, do you see the difference between subjective and objective? They thought they were doing right, but there's got to be a standard that everybody gets that this was an abominable crime. So it's like this is where we're at in moral subjectivism, and especially to today. I mean, you know, we're always trying to be in the pro-life crowd pushing for people to realize the, the horror of abortion, but it's like I've told people today, you almost have to go and speak about animals to say, do you think it would be wrong to dismember a puppy? You know, what if you said, you had a shirt that says, my puppy, my right, my choice. I should be able to do what I want with my puppy. It's my puppy after all. And then show them how crazy that is when it's compared to we're allowing it with unborn children. You know, my child, my choice. You know, that there is some objective standard that we got to say, your heartstrings go out for a puppy. It should also go out for a life. But then at the end of the day, it's got to be according to some standard. Otherwise, it's anything goes. And in a world of anything goes, it doesn't matter if you love your neighbor or eat your neighbor. And that might sound crazy, but it's like, remember when Our Lady Guadalupe came back in 1530? This was in the midst of, of an Aztec culture who would go to war to capture people for food. You're like, so, you know, when we try and say, you know, like I can remember watching these debates and, you know, this atheist makes a big point. Everybody claps and, yeah, down with the believers and this is all right. But it's like, have you ever thought about the implications of, of this if, in fact, there was no God and thus no objective standard in a world where anything goes? Like William Lane Craig continues, he said, Frederick Nietzsche in the 19th century atheist who proclaimed the death of God understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. We must be very careful here, though, Craig says. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must, nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I think we can, just as we can acknowledge the context of a law book without knowing its author. Rather, the question is, he says, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? He says, I don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, human morality is objective. After all, if there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? Moral values are either just expressions of personal taste 
or the byproducts of socio-biological evolution and conditioning. On the atheistic view, some actions say rape may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of evolution has become taboo, but that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the, atheist, on the atheistic view, apart from the social consequences, there's nothing really or ultimately wrong with raping someone or the various crimes we mentioned. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. So he kind of puts it in this logical formula. He said, um, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. You know, and again, uh, this points what we're talking about. There's a, there's a sense also not just in time, but in eternity. There's also this ultimate justice. If there is no ultimate justice, then we have no hope for wrongs ever to be righted. You know, um, and really it doesn't matter if life ends at the grave. It makes it no difference whether you've lived as a Hitler or as a Mother Teresa, as a Stalin or as a saint. In the end, death is just a hole, not a door. So as Dostoevsky put it, if there is no God or immortality, then all things are permitted. So since justice is often not done in the short run in human life on earth, either justice is done in the long run, in which case there must be a long run, or else this absolute demand we make for moral meaning and ultimate justice is not met by reality, but is a mere subjective quirk of the human psyche, in which case there's no foundation in reality for our deepest moral instincts, no objective validity or justification for justice. You know, imagine in living in a world without courts, law, or a justice system, you know, uh, what that world would be like, you know, and yet if there's no ultimate justice, then what's the foundation for it, any of it? So uh, again, back to Rady replies, he says, justice demands that there be a God. The very sense of justice among men resulting in law court supposes a just God. We do not give ourselves our sense of justice. It comes from whoever made us, and no one can give what he does not possess himself. Yet justice cannot always be done by men in this world. Here the good often suffer and the wicked prosper. And even though human justice does not always succeed in balancing the scales, they will be balanced someday by a just God who most certainly um, must exist. So again, I, I think it's good for us to ponder that. You know, moral law, it's got its foundation. If not, it's anything goes. And if it's anything goes, you don't want to live in a world like that. So that brought me to this uh, debate that I watched one time. So we've probably heard of Christopher Hitchens. He's mm -hmm. kind of one of the most well-known atheists. He recently passed away a couple years ago. But his brother Peter uh, wrote a book called The Rage Against God, and he is a believer and he kind of explains, uh, you know, why, you know, he's a believer and why his brother wasn't. So I watched him, uh, Peter Hitchens, in a debate. <clears throat> this was at Oxford on the existence of, of God. He was part of a team. Three were arguing for the existence of God, three against. These two other ones, uh, the believers made nice, calm, intellectual points. But when Hitchens came up, he went to what he believed is at the heart of the matter. That atheists put up a smokescreen in their arguments in order to rationalize the real dilemma, which he said is moral accountability before God. So um, I'm trying to think of what would be where he says here. He goes, you know, if, like, why would you want there not to be a God? You know, he asks, uh, why would you want to live in a purposeless chaos in which none of your actions had any significance, in which there was no hope of justice, in which the lives of all those whom you love ended abruptly at death, and had no further significance. Why would you want, desire, actively wish to live in a universe as disgusting as that? He said you'd have to have a very good reason. And he says, and I think these gentlemen 
do have a very good reason, and it's what they never wish to discuss. They don't want justice. They do want the universe to be purposeless. They do not want their own individual, individual actions to have any other significance than their immediate effect. He says, basically, it's like a criminal, uh, you know, not wanting there to be cops because we don't want to be found out, you know. So he said, um, I'm trying to just to summarize here. He goes, the atheists don't wish to discuss this because they know exactly what I'm saying. They are very well aware of the implications of what I'm saying for society in general. They know perfectly well that if everybody didn't believe in God, the comfortable lives they live in extremely agreeable suburbs where they can trust people not to cheat them and rob them and mug them and rape them would come to an end. They want to keep the secret to themselves. They want to have all the joys and all the advantages provided by Christianity, but not pay the dues. And that is why when you challenge the atheist side on this very point, they run from it, refusing it to discuss it. So, um, I mean, Dinesh D'Souza kind of makes this, the same point. He says in his book, uh, well, he's one that's debated uh, Peter Hitchens' brother, Christopher, and he, and he says in his book, uh, What's So Great About Christianity? He said, my conclusion is that contrary to popular belief, atheism is not primarily an intellectual revolt, it is a moral revolt. revolt. Atheists don't find God invisible so much as objectionable. They aren't adjusting their desires to the truth, but rather the truth to fit their desires. This is something we all can identify with, right? It's a temptation even for us. We want to be saved as long as we are not saved from our sins. We are quite willing to be saved from a whole host of social evils, from poverty, disease, to war. But we want to leave untouched the personal evils such as selfishness and lechery and pride. We need spiritual healing, but we don't want it. Like a supervisory parent, God gets in the way. So here's where he concludes. He says, this is the perennial appeal of atheism. It gets rid of the stern fellow with a long beard and liberates us for the pleasures of sin and depravity. The atheist seeks to get rid of moral judgment by getting rid of the judge. Yeah, how about that? And this is St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri, the Rome of the West. I'm your host, Peter Krutz, and we're with Sean Miller, and we're talking about uh, part seven, the reasons for God and... The moral, yeah, you know, reasons. it's like on Morality. at least on at least three occasions, um, I can remember reading about or you know, saying basically these people who try to give these smoke screens why they don't believe in God, and, and they're trying to sound rational, but basically, it comes to find out is that when someone pushes them on it, it's like you don't believe because you're sleeping with your girlfriend, right? And then, then the gig is up; they get it. They're trying to rationalize it because it's hard for us to look it's inside of, of our own self, you know, like. Uh, if you ever heard of a guy named Ray Comfort, he's uh, he's he's like a street evangelist. Him and Kirk Cameron, they they kind uh -huh, of right, work right. together, and um, I've watched some of his stuff. It's really good in terms of when he's on the street. He'll ask people. He'll say, "Do you think you are a good person?" You know, and, and I oh. mean, you gotta oh. look this up. You know, because <laughs> I see this. Every, so you're a liar and a cheat and an adulterer, and, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, this guy. Yeah, okay. Right. So I mean, it's a great it's a great um, tactic to help people to see themselves like uh, like you know he'll go and say of course you know are you a good person do you think you're going to go to heaven oh yeah i'm a good person i think i'm a good person oh yeah sure well he goes well um, uh, how many lies do you think you've told in your life he goes oh too many plenty of white lies uh, i don't think anything serious well i would say thousands he goes you know have you ever stolen anything he goes well yeah i've stolen a little bit but nothing big you know he goes well have you ever uh, you know like downloaded music on the internet well yeah i've stolen that too but he goes what about pornography you ever looked at that well not much you know but uh, well, okay, yeah, everybody does. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, have you ever, uh, you know, fornicated with your girlfriend? Well, yeah, yeah, right. You know, so then he goes, all right, look, um, so you told me 
He goes, I'm not judging you, but you just told me you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, a fornicator, an idolater, an adulterer, and you violated all his commandments. So he kind of then pushes him a little bit. He goes, now, if you had up here before a judge, would you be innocent or guilty? You know, and they're like, well, guilty. And they said, but, you know, but, yeah, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be this good person, you know. He goes, well. He said, it's like standing in front of a judge and say, judge, you know, I, I just raped the woman there, but I'm really trying to be the best I can. I mean, the deed is done. So it's like <laughs> he's got to throw the book at you before you're crying. You know, now this is where then he makes the appeal to mercy. This is where Christ comes in. I hope that when we talk about these things, you know, that we're in a moral mess, but it's like this appeal to mercy is that this is what Easter is about, Right. You want to, uh, we know our sins, we know our misdeeds, our crimes, and but you're not doomed to walk through the door of justice. Divine mercy, like divine medicine, is available to cleanse one's personal guilt. That's the good news of Christianity, right? Christ paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. This is the heart of what Easter is about. You know, the whole thing of why Christ came, this divine mercy came to us so that we wouldn't have to give an account fully because if we all stood on our own merits before the judgment seat of God, we're all doomed. So why not look at the appeal of Christianity and say that its appeal is the fact is that Christ came to give us divine life out of love to bear the punishment due our sins so that we can be set free. You know, and again, if you haven't heard about the Divine Mercy Sunday, this is the culmination of the Easter week. This is the appeal. I mean, we can experience on that day both the forgiveness of guilt as well as punishment due to our sin. It's almost like a second baptism for us. I mean, really, at Easter, we, we um, you know, it's all about baptism. All of Lent is preparing for baptism. That's why, you know, for us who've already been baptized, we renew our baptismal promises, we're sprinkled. But it's primarily intended for those who have been preparing as catechumens to be immersed in the waters. And it's like they come up a new creature. This is what the promise of the whole of Christianity is is that the Lord wanted us to be baptized, to become a new egg in him, a new creation in, in Christ. And so really, as for us, we want to make an appeal for all those who are Catholic especially. It's like, get rid of, of the moral guilt that you're having when you recognize, if you've taken the time to be silent and examine your conscience, you know, like they say, in a depression, go to confession. You know, um, you know confession isn't just about the psychological stuff, but it's about the true moral guilt that we all have that's got reverberations and all these disorders of personalities, you know. But have you ever seen, Peter, the um, – it's called the Christ Pantocrator at St. Catherine's Monastery. No, it's a picture of no. – it's an icon of, of Christ that they found. It's at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's dating from the 6th the century A.D. If you get a chance, look at it. It's called, so it's called the Christ Pantocrator, which means ruler of, of all icon. And it's it's amazing is that when you look at the face, it's like if you put your hand in the middle between his his eyes and and nose, it's the face of Christ. And on one side you see this gentle, like human side of Christ. On the other side you see like this divine wrathful Christ. It's almost like one is mercy, one is justice. They say human and divine, but it's like you really can see, you know, when we when we want to see the Lord at Judgment Day, I want to face the gentle merciful side of, of Christ and not the justice that's that he has to do because of my own sin. But, you know, Christ is going to come to judge the living and the dead, and let's walk through the door of mercy and not through the door of, of justice. So kind of to, to kind of bring things to, to a close here, 
Pope John Paul II wrote a document called Reconciliation and Penance, and he talks about this loss of sense of sin, and he says that we've been drowning out conscience. You know, we've, it's become deadened, like you were saying. So we have to examine it. We've got to listen to it. We've got to be quiet. You know, we've lost this sense of sin. This is what the sin of our century is. You know, they say mental floss prevents moral decay. You know, you think about, like, a dentist, you know, we brush our teeth, we floss. That's what we have to do with our conscience, you know, at, at night, just to kind of make it aware. Um, I mentioned Blaise Pascal, and he said that, you know, again, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. So think about the diversions and the distractions and all of what makes us busy. Somebody said busy is an acronym for being under Satan's yoke. But to try and really be um, silent, you know, it's going to be silence or violence. If we don't know who we are and have that peace of soul, we can easily react emotionally. You know, there's a book called Crucial Conversations where it talks about that reaction, silence or violence. But um, I want to just give you a little teaser for next time for Pascal's Wager where he crafted this argument and he said that, you know, like basically um, it's about does God exist? He said we place our bet in the afterlife and what we do in life right here. And what we do depends on whether or not we believe that God exists. He says, so if you behave morally as if God exists and he does, you win everything. And if you behave morally and God doesn't exist, then you lose nothing because you got nothing to lose. Either way, you win. But if you behave immorally as if God doesn't exist and you're right, you win nothing. But if you're wrong, if you're wrong, you lose everything. So I'm going to talk about this argument in detail about the moral argument and then kind of placing your bet on how you live. But to kind of conclude, you know, here for today, when you look at like everything we've discussed, you want to say which offers the better explanatory view, the atheistic view or the theistic view. You know, if you're looking about does morality come from molecules or does it come from a moral mind? At the end of the day, which which belief system better explains this evidence, you know, that we believe that, hey, moral law, it comes from a lawgiver, just like the laws of nature outside of us, the laws of nature within us. So my vote is basically the moral law obviously points to the moral lawgiver, which is God. You know, yep. we're just not molecules in motion. Our minds are rooted in the rational mind of God as well as our moral law, and God help us to follow it and seek his mercy. That's right. And and remember, it's the little things. The, that guy who was turning up the, the volume on those uh, shocks, it started with a little shock and a little, a little more. So little bads mount up and make it easier to be bad. Little goods help you be a little bit gooder. Well, we're, we'll see you next week. Please tell a friend about this. Remember, there's beauty in the world, so there must be an absolute beautiful. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.